Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The casualties suffered during the First World War dwarfed those of previous conflicts. Some 8.5 million soldiers died as a result of wounds and disease. How does a society come to terms with such loss? How did parents, brothers, sisters, children, friends deal with the loss of their nearest and dearest? Well, it should come as no surprise that spiritualism and the belief in ghosts increased in the post-war years as families and soldiers sought to connect with the dead. I'm your host, James Rogers. This is the Warfare Podcast. And to take us through this fascinating, haunting history of ghosts and World War I, I've invited Andrew Smith onto the podcast. Now, Andrew is a professor at the University of Sheffield in the UK and the author of a new book on the ghosts of World War I, published by Edinburgh University Press. As such, he's the perfect person to illuminate this strange world of friendly spirits and malevolent spectres that appeared in the trenches, in literature, and in the minds of those desperately trying to cope with the tragic losses of war. Hi, Andrew. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Many thanks for inviting me. Hey, look, we're really happy to have you here. Thanks for coming on. I was having a chat with our general manager at History Hit, James Carson. So a shout out to James there. He mentioned that he was reading a new book on the ghosts of World War One, And so we got into a chat about this over a coffee and it sounded fascinating. And so we had to get you on the podcast. But I think it's important before we start to kind of clarify what we mean by the ghosts of World War One. Are we talking about spooky happenings and visits from beyond the grave? Perhaps not. So what do we mean by ghosts of World War One? Some of these are about ghosts coming from the grave or soldier ghosts coming back to haunt the culture in various ways. But actually, the book looks rather broadly at the idea of the ghost and the different kinds of worlds that it comes to inhabit. So there are considerations of ghost stories, some of which are about ghost soldiers, some of which are obliquely about ghost soldiers. M.R. James and E.F. Benson, for example, two prominent ghost story writers who clearly are using the ghost story to reflect on the war. I also look at spiritualist contexts because that was a very rich source in which one can find ghosts. So looking through back copies of the Occult Review where you get spiritualists 
discussing the idea of soldier ghosts and the ways in which they communicate rather patriotically to the living and how it is that one can be enlisted somehow for their cause, as well as looking at spiritualist narratives, some of them quite well known, like Oliver Lodge's Raymond, but also looking at texts which have effectively been dictated by the spirits of dead soldiers, telling what it's like on the other side and what they expect on other people. I also looked at stories about shell shock. That might seem as though that's not quite related, but actually the stories about shell shock are interesting because there we often have ghosts who reflect on the fact that they have become kind of disembodied and lost. It's really sort of stories about the missing. So what we have are people who sometimes return home, but they are not who they are, or they've lost their identity, and they have become spectre-like. They have become ghostly to the families. So it's a question of how you kind of restore them to life. The shell shock victim, in many ways, kind of has many of the attributes that we might associate with the ghosts themselves, of being there but not there and in need of some kind of assistance. I also looked at memoirs, memoirs from the First World War, some of them quite canonical, Vera Britton, Robert Graves, Edmund Blunden, some of them uh, less canonical, and the ways in which they also incorporate ghosts in their reflections about the war. And finally, as a kind of link to some of this, I looked at some of the therapeutic contexts of looking at wounded soldiers, largely ones with shell shock, people like Freud, but also famously W.H.R. Rivers' Instinct in the Unconscious, where he reflects on his experiences of treating soldiers who have, for one reason or another, kind of lost their identities and the ways in which he restores them back to health. And he, again, kind of reflects on them as if they were like ghosts who require this kind of intervention to restore them to life. So we have lots to dig into, Andrew. And I think we should start with this rise of spiritualism after the First World War. Now, it's easy to look back on that period and think that that's a very strange thing to do. A lot of people might be quite dismissive of spiritualism and the occult today. But there were quite prominent people who did believe in the occult and actually a lot who had lost their children during the First World War became very invested in spiritualism as a means to try and find some sort of connection to the dead, some answers for the lost. And so many were lost and remained lost and were never found once the searches were called off and a way to have some kind of closure. So tell us a little bit about the rise of spiritualism during this period. Spiritualism, I suppose, has its roots, of course, in the late Victorian period in terms of its sort of popularity. But during the First World War, it's given a kind of notable particular kind of presence, I think. The ways in which people engage with the spiritualist culture is a way of trying to understand death outside of conventional Christian forms. So you get people like Arthur Conan Doyle writing a sort of history of the First World War even before it ends, because also writes a history of spiritualism. But what you get in magazines like The Occult Review, despite its title, The Occult, it isn't necessarily kind of dealing with black magic or anything like that. It is actually dealing with kind of spiritualist narratives and the ways in which spiritualist narratives reflect on the plight of the soldier and also how it is that the soldier, the dead soldier, might communicate with us and how we can still support their endeavours. So at one level, it is absolutely there to kind of console those who have lost people. But it's also suggesting that those losses are in a cause, in an important cause, and one which we can also assist, that we as civilians, as it were, can be enlisted in order to help soldiers carrying on their struggle. And the reason for that is that 
Some of these kinds of narratives, JWS, M. Ward's Gone West and A Subaltern in Spirit Land, for example, actually talks about how the struggle carries on even on the astral plane, even on the spiritual plane itself. There is still a kind of battle taking place and how it's important that the forces of good win out in the end over this. Somebody like Wesley Tudor Pohl's book, Private Doubting, which is meant to be dictated by a dead soldier, Private Doubting, also kind of reflects on this and about how a certain type of spiritual work needs to be undertaken by the soldier, but one in which it would be possible to remove them from a kind of purgatorial realm in which they can kind of ascend to heaven. They're quite specifically structured, these spiritualist places. It isn't just about how a seance might conjure somebody. It is actually an attempt to kind of mark out what these places look like and what it would be like to inhabit them. For example, in Ward's A Subaltern in Spiritland, he uses predominantly a kind of conceit of the stately home, the stately home being an, an elite privileged space which only a few can enter, but the idea being all oh, that sounds a bit like heaven. So you have to do some kind of morally good work in order to actually get off the purgatorial realm and ascend. But the spiritualist practice that comes through in this is the idea that the astral plane is where you, as a human, can also travel. So you can go there and you can meet the dead. You can actually meet the dead in various sorts of ways and encounter them and wish them well and then enable them to ascend as they do good works. So again, it's a sort of sense of overcoming grief and mourning where it enables you to meet your dead and enable them to finally have the positive release of being able to ascend. Their work is done as a soldier and they can then move on. When you've been doing your research, Andrew, have you found that this is a phenomenon that happens after other great wars? Do we see a revival of spiritualism after the First World War or perhaps after the Napoleonic Wars? Well, I think Napoleonic Wars would be a little early. It's true that there is a spiritualist revival after the First World War. I think it's different perhaps when we think about the Second World War, the heyday of spiritualism really a sort of Victorian period, and then kind of this spike around the First World War. And I think one of the reasons for that is the sense of wanting to reflect on the war and the meaning of the war and the purpose of the war and wanting to know that your loved ones have not died in something which has been a meaningless encounter. And I think once you get into the 1920s and beyond, there is an element within the culture which is trying to make sense of that about the point of the death, the purposes of the war itself. I just don't think you get that after the Second World War. There's a sense of very kind of clear rectitude and purpose about the Second World War, and it doesn't create the same kind of sense of trauma and longing and need for explanation, I think, that perhaps you get in the First World War. The way you describe it is kind of like it isn't a ghost in the scary, spooky sense as we see it today. It isn't a horror in the graphic sense of a horror movie, but it's a horror in the mental anguish of war, the haunting sense of war. And you mentioned that it's tantamount to being trapped in a level of purgatory. And I'm just wondering, did you find in your research that a number of soldiers become spiritualists after the First World War? Not just the parents who had lost their children, but the soldiers themselves. I think quite prominently is JFC Fuller. He was quite one of the occult after this period. Yes, there are some, absolutely. Wesley Tudor Pohl ended the war as a major and was wounded twice. And his book, Private Doubting, which is 
interesting because it's channeling the spirit of a non-officer spirit. Usually, they tend to be officers that kind of communicate. Actually, it's a private, although a private had been a school teacher, supposedly, in their pre-civilian life, and therefore can kind of speak in a fairly articulate way. But yes, there is a sense in which actually combatants are kind of reflecting on this, and whether they have had encounters which have changed their version of reality, the way in which they look at the world. I think that's a kind of a running theme, actually, even amongst those who were not necessarily spiritualists themselves. Thinking of somebody like Vera Britton, who does recount in her Testament of Youth about encounters with spirits and people, soldiers who claim that the spirits of their dead comrades are fighting alongside them. And at one level, she dismisses this as nonsense. But at another kind of level, she says the world doesn't exist in any way in which we once thought it did. The world has effectively been torn up. And new kinds of ways of thinking about the world, new kinds of realities are being generated because of that. And I think that did lead some to embrace the spiritualist cause. It led others like Britain to go down more of a sort of political direction, a way of thinking about how we might avoid these sorts of things again. But the sense that reality no longer is quite real, I think is a sort of pervasive context actually within these texts themselves. So that's why the ghost as a sort of figure of unreality seems to loom so large in these narratives and within these sorts of contexts. But yes, those people who had fought often did come back with these kinds of stories and did kind of believe earnestly that they had these encounters or some kind of spiritual contact with another world. Do we have accounts of seeing ghosts in the trenches? I mean, we have those haunting images of that thousand-yard stare, and, and we can all envisage this in our minds, but do we have accounts of people under that extreme circumstance with the mists and the fog of war quite literally all around them, of seeing figures in the darkness? Blunden, strangely enough, in his memoirs, in undertones of war, he does give a couple of encounters where he says he bumped into people who seemed to be wandering around the trenches and he had no idea who they were. And they were kind of asking for directions. And he says, I wasn't sure if it was a person or a ghost who's asking these directions. Uh, there's a moment just before an attack, he's sorting out as a bucket full of mills bombs and, and he's just kind of making sure it's in the right position. And somebody comes along and asks for directions and he has no idea of what this person should be doing in this trench at this point. And the person then heads off and he does kind of contemplate where did this vision come from out of the fog. It was literally a misty day, a misty morning. And there are a couple of occasions that happened to Blunden, certainly, where he's not sure who these people were that he bumped into. He's not quite sure what to make of it. They don't really sort of feel like they're spiritual entities particularly, but they also don't feel like they're notably malevolent entities either. And I think that's probably one of the features of so many of these kind of spirits is that some of them are quite clearly not gothic. You know, they're not sort of objects of horror. They're not terrifying and so on. Whereas some of them are, and I think that's kind of the way in which the culture wants to distinguish between those kinds of figures who are figures of consolation, are figures that in a way we are mourning over. And then there are other figures who somehow malevolently seem to hold us back, more kinds of sort of dangerous ghosts, which seem to be much more indebted to a Gothic tradition. And they are in a way kind of holding back the post-First World War, from properly being able to move on. And those ghosts are given kind of a more of an, a malevolent inflection and are slightly more troubling to deal with. Well, tell us a little bit more about these figures of horror, the more malevolent ghosts. Yeah, certainly. There's been a great article by Patrick Murphy and Fred Porchetto on M.R. James's A Warning to the Curious, the short story from 1925, which reads it within the context of the First World War. 
and a sense of there being a kind of malevolent spirit that's at work within the story. One of the things I was looking at with the other narratives within that collection called A Warning for the Curious, but there are four other short stories in it. And all of them symbolically seem to be about the First World War. I'll give an example. One of them is an uncommon prayer book. And really, it's just about some prayer books, which seem to be open on a special page in this church on a particular day. And people are wondering, well, who's doing that? What's happened? And then somebody steals them. And it's quite clear that the person who steals them, a man called Mr. Poschwitz, who has a very strong German accent, is intended to be somehow the enemy within the story, who is stealing rare English prayer books. So there's a sense of German hostility towards English culture. And he is seen escaping in his car, driving past a memorial, war memorial, in the graveyard where the church is. And something is seen as coming out of the memorial and on top of the car. Later on, Poschwitz is witnessed being attacked by this strange figure, who's a sort of kind of vampiric ghost that has come out of the war memorial and kills him. And at one level, there's a sort of sense of the rectitude there of Germans who are stealing British culture, and this is a kind of revenge narrative. But there's also a sense of the menace of the ghost, that the ghost is this dangerous, malevolent, vampiric form. And there is something in M.R. James's other tales in that collection where you have ghosts, for example, where their hands come out of the earth and seem to grab your ankles out of the earth, which feels like a battlefield in some ways, the hands which come out of the dirt and hold you back. And I think with James, who was acutely conscious of the First World War because of his experiences at Cambridge University and all, all the losses and so on, which the, the college took. He was acutely conscious of this, but he was also, I think, conscious of the fact that the war dead hang on to us. And if they hang on to us in this kind of malevolent way, we're going to struggle to be able to move on. And I think that that's part of the paradox, perhaps, that we get in the post-war period is an impulse to want to mourn, commemorate and grieve. And there is this other kind of impulse which says we can't move on from the war, that the war dead won't leave us alone. And therefore we can't embrace a new future because of this fact that we seem to be held back by what are these rather more dangerous and slightly sinister spirits. Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. You'll hear how code breakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists and uncover the hidden history that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence, Slavery to civil rights, the gold rush to the space race. I'll be speaking to leading experts to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. These are very different representations of the ghost in literature, in writings, and in spiritualism. On the one side, you have this haunted mind, the lost and wandering soldier. And then the other, you almost have a violence, an unpredictable side of the ghost, an uncontrollable side of the ghost. And, and as you're speaking, I just wonder to the extent to which this is a literary manifestation, an imagination of something that is actually very real in the human beings that are coming back from the First World War. Is this an imagination of the true realities of shell shock and trauma that lingers on in the minds of the survivors? Yes, I think there is something about that. I think it's interesting, say, for example, with Rivers, who's treating soldiers with shell shock, and he's kind of thinking about their experiences of trauma. He wants to adapt Freudian ideas as a way of kind of affecting a cure, that really you take a soldier back to the traumatic experience which they have repressed, you get them to live through it, you then reframe the memory to try to bring out some positive elements within it, and you hope that you provide them with some kind of way of coping with that. But he's conscious of the fact that the soldiers that he often encounters have become somehow disorientated, somehow depersonalized. And he's conscious of something that he refers to as the fugue state. And the fugue state is when you develop an alternative personality, a personality that could go down the shops and buy a packet of cigarettes and come back and you'd be completely unaware of what on earth has happened. And he kind of sees that in some of these victims, that they somehow develop this other personality that seems to have a life of its own and can go off and do things and behave quite normally, actually in public, but shouldn't be there. And it does lead to a discussion about authenticity, about what are we meant to do with this kind of fugue-like manifestation of somebody's personality? Is it somehow not quite the real person? Is it a sign of their illness? How do we get them to kind of reanimate and re-inhabit themselves? So he's kind of conscious of there are these strange sort of wandering spirits which come out of sort of a peculiar kind of moment to do with trauma. And he's interested in how he might therapeutically work on this in order to try to get rid of that 
what he sees as the inauthentic person, the fugue that goes for a walk, if you like. And you do find some of this in some short stories. The Strand is particularly rich in short stories around soldiers with shell shock and so on. One of them, written by a First World War veteran, F. Britton Austin, he wrote a short story called A Point of Ethics in 1919, which is about a woman who's with her husband and suddenly this man comes into their flat and claims her as his wife. And as far as she knows, he has been missing since 1918 and has been sort of officially made dead, legally dead. And he's regained his memory. He's had a completely different life, a new personality with a new wife settled in a new part of town. And he now kind of comes back in this kind of sort of confused way in which he's reaching out for his old life. And it does use some available psychological concepts in order to try to manage some of that. In the end, the story is that he kind of returns to his new wife and goes off to Brazil. He's a bit paid off by the new husband, I suppose. It's called A Point of Ethics because the subtitle is What Would You Do? What would you do if you were confronted with a shell shock soldier who has come back, who has in their fugue-like state actually inhabited a new kind of world in which they're quite happy? Would you kind of want them to kind of come back into your new world or would you kind of send them off into this other place where they have now find a way of residing and living? So it touches the literature a bit, but the literature, I think, is also slightly knowing about some of the therapeutic contexts. And I think particularly the literature that's written by combatants, who are kind of also aware about some of these sorts of therapeutic contexts and about, I suppose, some of the experiences they've had of fellow soldiers and some of the experiences that they might have had as well. Do we know if stories like that are based on any kind of empirical examples, any real-life cases of this happening? I would have to say no. I think even with Rivers, where Rivers might be sort of looking at the fugue, these are modest kinds of moments of aberration within somebody's life where they do something quite coherent and reasonable, but out of character for perhaps for their normal personality. But the idea that one sort of inhabits another kind of life in that way, there's no evidence for that at all, I think. What you do, though, get is a number of short stories which are like that. And I think they're doing something culturally specific which is what you will get is often a shell-shocked soldier who ends up back home, doesn't know who they are, and they're kind of restored to life. They're actually sort of restored to their pre-war life by virtue of going back to the family. And the family kind of, as I say, kind of restores them in some ways. And is I think magazines like The Strand kind of reaching out to families and saying, again, you two can do your bit in this. Actually bringing people home will bring them back to life. It will restore them to who they are. And I think it is kind of reflecting on that idea of the home that feels bereft. If you're dealing with a soldier who has in some ways come back from the war that's damaged, psychologically damaged perhaps in some ways, it's trying to say that kind of loving kindness, family support, all of those kinds of things will in the end affect a sort of resurrection in which they come back to life. So they're sort of like symbolically ghostly figures who kind of get restored to who they once were due to family support and family love. You see, that's fascinating. So this is a, a very much culturally specific, purpose-driven publication that is trying to, in some ways, aid in the recovery and the reassembling of a post-war world. Yes, I think that's true. It is trying to almost try to get rid of the war. I think that's kind of the interesting thing, because the soldier, when they come back into the home, they are freighted with the horrors of the war. This is the thing which has damaged them in all sorts of ways. And if you can turn them back into their pre-war self, then you've effectively got rid of the war. And if you get rid of the war, then you can move on. 
I mean, that's kind of the way in which I think the logic on that goes. As people try to move on, do you see this boost in Gothic literature? Of course, it was oh so popular in the 1800s, your Bram Stokers, your Mary Shelleys. Do you see a revival again during this period as people clamber for answers and ways to forget the war? I think there are ways, there are interesting ways in which a lot of these narratives engage with the Gothic context and then quite often swerve away from it. So they might sort of set up something which feels fairly sort of conventional in the kind of Gothic sort of way, and then will actually not want to develop the malevolence that one might find within a Gothic narrative, and instead to come around to a more kind of confident, happy ending that we can see off the horror, if you like. I suppose that's the way in which one does it. There is a sort of, I think, a specific cultural manoeuvre in that. You evoke horror sometimes in order to get rid of it. Sometimes that's not possible with the M.R. James stories because he's wanting, I think, to explore a different kind of cultural impulse. But a lot of these narratives are about using Gothic traditions in order to bring people into the home, which would be a terrifying thing in a ghost story, and then actually you humanise them or you bring them back to life. And at that point, you move away from the Gothic. So it's interesting how they kind of pull upon pre-existing narrative forms, quite familiar narrative forms like the Gothic, and I think that in its own way makes something familiar and something safe to a degree that you know what you're dealing with, you know what you're reading. And then mercifully, you also get something which swerves towards something which is more like the romance and away from the Gothic and you get a kind of happy resolution around some of that. But I mentioned the Gothic in all of this. There's also, I think, important to acknowledge the popularity of detective fiction as a sort of spin-off from some of that because you, know, you can think of Dorothy L. Sayers, Lord Peter Whimsey. He's a shell-shock victim and he often kind of struggles with his post-war experiences. So I wrote a bit about that and somebody like Jill Plain, who's a critic, who's written about detective stories in the First World War, and has written about Agatha Christie and says, well, the thing about Agatha Christie's stories and why they're so popular is that Christie's narratives might have a cliche where you have 10 people who turn up at a country house, one of them is bumped off. And then it's all about, well, who did it? And actually what you get from the characters isn't a sense of the horror of the death of their friend. What they say is, I was with the butler in the pantry, it wasn't me. And Jill's argument about that is that's all about how we have become culturally numb to death. We don't care that the dead are dead because of the mass desiccation by the war. But because this is a detective story, we also want to know who did it. So there's a kind of contrary sort of cultural impulses at work, if you like, in Christie's work. At one level, registering the numbness about death, but at another level, registering the fact that we would like an explanation for it. And I think that does explain partly something like Christie's enormous popularity in the post-war period, is she's tapping those kinds of cultural impulses. So do we see any legacies that continue from this period today? Do we see the ghosts of the First World War continuing to live in our literary mind? You mentioned Agatha Christie, and of course one of the most popular films that's come out in the last couple of years is Knives Out, which is Daniel Craig going around trying to solve a similar kind of murder mystery scenario. Detective stories on TV are more popular than ever. Can we trace these back to that period? There's a certain kind of strand in detective fiction where you have the detective who is, for one reason or another, a slightly tortured figure. It maybe does have its roots in some of that, I think. You can think of Christie again with, say, Captain Hastings, who's Poirot's sidekick, who's also a First World War veteran. And they do crop up in these kinds of places if they are damaged men who are interested in the possibilities of the restoration of order. 
So I think something about the damaged individual that is the detective is there that we kind of see carrying on. In terms of links between the First World War and later conflicts, there is an interesting short story by Elizabeth Bowen called The Demon Lover, which is from 1940, in a collection called The Demon Lover as well, which reflects on the Second World War very specifically. And in The Demon Lover, it centres on a woman who has moved to the country because of the Blitz, She's gone back into London to the family home because she wants to pick up some mail and make sure the place is okay. And then finds there's a letter that's been sent there from her fiancé, who has been killed in the First World War. And he had got a promise from her before he went off and was killed about how he would be with her on a certain date. And then she gets into a taxi, the taxi drives off, and he's driving the taxi. And it kind of finishes with her screaming. And what it's kind of saying is that there is a link somehow between the First World War and the Second World War, that the ghosts of the First World War, the legacies of the First World War, somehow reoccur around something to do with the Second World War, that it's not quite being cast off. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to us about this. I think your work really reminds us that war isn't just the kinetic, it isn't just the missiles and the bullets and the battles, but it is truly an all-pervasive phenomena that affects every level of society, including the literature that we continue to read. And speaking of which, what is the title of your book and where can we buy it? It's Gothic Fiction and the Writing of Trauma, 1914 to 1934, the Ghosts of World War One. It's Edinburgh University Press. It's on Amazon as well. Andrew, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89 percent off usps and ups make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with stamps.com use code program for a special offer that's stamps.com, code program. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland 
further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.